Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy and nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Last week, after getting an email from my son's college saying that I had to go and pick him up and that his long-anticipated freshman year would be continuing not on campus in Boston but in his bedroom in my house, I was exasperated and called my brother not just to complain, but to learn. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine. I asked Steve if he would be willing to move our conversation to the Vermont conversation, and he agreed. Well, that show last week became the most shared and uh, clicked on ever in our podcast page at vermontconversation.com, and it's now a widely shared article on Medium. Uh, I asked Steve if he would come back and continue this conversation, and he again agreed. So, Steve, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Hi, and thanks for having me back. I, I know there's a long tradition of sequels not matching the originals, and uh, we'll do our best. <laughs> okay. Well, since we spoke, coronavirus has been confirmed in all 50 states. Here in Vermont, we've gone from two cases when we spoke last Wednesday to 19 today, and globally 8,000 people have died, and extreme measures have been implemented uh, throughout Europe and in many other places. Um, so from where you sit as a, an epidemiologist and a public health expert, what have we learned about coronavirus that we didn't know when we spoke a week ago? <laughs> well, uh, as you might imagine, um, the research and the numbers are literally uh, pouring in. Um, just in, in, the, in the few days since we talked, there have been multiple papers um, and analyses uh, that have told us both what we might be facing and what we have to do. I would say two of the most important ones uh, came in on Sunday and Monday. Uh, one, uh, which we can talk about, was a report from the UK uh, 
which was a very sophisticated modeling effort that modeled not only what would happen if we did nothing, but what would happen if we undertook a whole set of measures, sort of parsing it out, isolation, quarantine, closing schools, et cetera. Um, that was one, and we can discuss the implications of that. And another was a paper uh, that came out in Science, I think it was on Monday, uh, with a new analysis, really amazing analysis of the Chinese data, and they said that 86% of the early transmission, uh, that's before they took what we would consider to be draconian measures, um, was from asymptomatic cases. So um, what does that mean? Asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and and this that was that is huge. So um, I think both of those, in addition to a lot of other things which we might touch on, uh, are the most salient uh, new information. And of course, as you alluded to, we've also seen the beginning of the exponential rise across the country that we talked about uh, last week. So let's start with that uh, second study. 86% of the, well, you you phrase it and, and say what the significance for everyday people in understanding it. Yes. So what that said was, and I emphasize that this was before the, the Chinese started really, you know, <laughs> taking what we would consider to be extreme measures. Um, but they, they found that most of the uh, most of the infections were not due to people who were coughing and with fever who you could isolate and hopefully prevent infection from, but from people who are walking around may well be young people who showed no signs of the virus, who, who only showed it, uh, either never showed it or showed it several days later. So what that means is that you can't organize a strategy around isolating uh, people uh, who are showing symptoms. It, it meant that a tremendous amount of infection, in this case, 86%, is coming from people who we have no idea that they are sick or about to be sick. Let's talk about the other, uh, the British study that model that did the modeling of the various types of disease control. What did that tell us? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it was a very, very sophisticated model. Uh, some of these modeling exercises are merely, you know, fitting curves to counts, um, you know, just drawing straight lines or exponential lines or whatever. Those, of course, um, are useful. Uh, but this was a very, very sophisticated model called an agent-based model. That's the technical technical language for it. Um but what that means is they literally modeled the behavior of individuals going into schools, going into stores. They, they had a massive computer simulation that allowed them to sort of see what the effect of the movement of individuals would be uh, and making certain assumptions about how effectively they could transmit the uh, virus uh, when, you, when, when those folks were in close contact with others. So this is what enabled them to do pretty sophisticated modeling of all these different uh, interventions. Uh, otherwise, it would be very hard. closing a school. What does that do? And in fact, that's been one of the big question marks. Uh, if 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 a school system has no cases, uh, 
how does closing the school uh, dampen down the epidemic? There were lots of theoretical reasons uh, and some historical reasons where we knew that had some effect, but we didn't really have that strong uh, empirical evidence. Uh, obviously, we still don't quite have the empirical evidence, but but this model, which, which used all the information that we have about the effects of these things, literally modeled what it would mean for kids to be in school, spread the infection, come home, be with their parents, et cetera, et cetera. So what they did is they um, broke down the numbers in terms of uh, doing nothing um, and then uh, uh, just isolating cases. That's what I mentioned before, just somebody who's symptomatic and uh, tested um, uh, sort of put it, putting them aside, then is household uh, case isolation and household quarantine was the next, then is closing schools and universities the next, and then all of them together, uh, case isolation, home quarantine, social distancing. And, and then what this showed was that the peak of the epidemic would be uh, roughly um, threefold, uh, three to fourfold doing nothing uh, than if one uh, implemented all these measures, and that right now they're modeling the peak of the epidemic as being in mid-June. So that's also significant. The third thing they did uh, was they um, calculated at what point we would exceed the capacity of our of our ICUs, uh, and that, sadly, I have to say, was far, far below the peak of any of these, of uh, the epidemic that they were predicting with any of these measures. So that was a little uh, depressing. Um, so no whether, matter what we do, we will exceed the capacity of the healthcare system. Is that what you're that saying? Is, that is what they're saying right now, yes. And why, and, and I know this relates to the phrase that you've mentioned, and of course so many people are mentioning, of flattening the curve. The curve meaning uh, keeping it below the line uh, where the healthcare system can deal with it. So, what happens if you exceed that line? Well, we're we're seeing what happened, what happens with that in both Italy and uh, we saw it in uh, in China, which is that there are people sitting in the hospital who need. Uh, very uh, intensive respiratory or other kinds of support, usually respiratory, and they can't get into the setting, the ICU, where they have ventilators and can get that support. So that's that's why the capacity of the uh, of intensive care is so um, important because that at that point it is life or death. If you need a ventilator and you can't get a ventilator, you will die. Uh, so uh, that capacity is very closely related to the fatality rate from the disease. Um, if we exceed the, the capacity of the ICUs or of our ventilator stocks, then people, simply speaking, will, will start dying who, whose lives could have been saved, and doctors will be put in this just completely impossible position, which the Italians have already written about, of having to choose uh, who's, who, I don't want to say it this way, but 
who's worth saving and whether they use those criteria implicitly or explicitly, um, they're doing it. They could even choose them at random, and then we'd say they're all equal. Uh, but in any case, that that's a situation we could find ourselves in. Um, um, you're, for folks who are just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're speaking with Steve Goodman. He's an associate dean at the Stanford School of Medicine, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine. So, and he is also my brother. Um, so, Steve, what is working uh, best uh, as we look around the world? <laughs> well, th- th- this, of course, is the the million billion dollar question right now. We know that the the Chinese uh, efforts worked, um, and what? But their efforts were extreme. Uh, they involved measuring temperatures in in, in huge numbers of people, immediately uh, isolating those who um, had a, a fever even before they had other symptoms putting them in what they called fever camps, which in this case I think were special hotels or apartment buildings, I'm not exactly sure, uh, where, and taking them away from their families. So here isolation was done away from the families. So the, the family spread was minimized. Uh, there was also complete lockdown of some neighborhoods, um, really very extreme reactions. Um, that was mainly in Wuhan. In some of the other cities, uh, they implement I'm not sure if they implemented restrictions quite that harsh but they did start with their lockdown much earlier than as we mentioned in our previous conversation than they did in Wuhan and the peak of the epidemic in those places this is just when they were reporting seven cases uh, in that in, in one city's case so far less than Vermont they were able to tamp down uh, the peak of the epidemic so the, the, I have to say that the severity of the measures needed, depend on where we are on the epidemic curve. If it's very, very early, and again, this is repeating what we said before, but now we're every week brings that doubling or tripling of the, the cases around the world. Uh, if we're very early, then it looks like the kinds of what we'll call social distancing measures that are now being taken exactly where I live uh, and will probably shortly be coming to Vermont are decently effective at uh, slowing the rate of new infections. Whether they are are effective enough remains to be seen, and uh, you you will watch it carefully in Vermont. We'll be watching it carefully here in California. We're sadly way ahead of you, um, and we may have to go to yet more severe restrictions. So this is going to be very regional. Um, and the places that can learn the lessons from uh, from the more severely affected places are the ones that will do the best. Unfortunately, this country did not quite learn the lessons of Italy and China, did not react very quickly. But within our country, hopefully places like Vermont and other regions that are watching what's happening in New York and California can react appropriately and um, and, and, and keep the peak uh, much, much lower than to, to a manageable level. So you live near Palo Alto, California. What is your situation now? What kind of restrictions yes. do you have? That is a very good question. 
Actually, I will go to our health department as we speak. Um, but basically, this entire region, not just uh, Palo Alto, the entire Silicon Valley and San Francisco, is under what they call, you know, uh, colloquially, uh, lockdown. And um, what, what does lockdown mean? Um, lockdown means that we're not supposed to go outside of our home except for essential activities and then only one person at a time. Uh, I will say that this is very far from a lockdown in the sense that the, the range of things that are considered essential is still rather wide. Um, and whether it still depends a lot on what individuals do for it. So, for example, essential businesses are still open. So what does that mean? Well, grocery stores are still open, gas stations, um, uh, drug stores, but restaurants are still open for takeout. Also, laundromats and uh, dry cleaners are open. Uh, Car repair shops are open. And a range of other businesses that um, actually are moderately essential, but when you add them all up, uh, a fair number of things are open. They've also instituted, very interestingly, um, uh, senior-only shopping times in our local grocery. This just happened starting yesterday. So between, I think it's uh, 9 and 9.30 or 9 and 10 in the morning, they are um, asking that only those over either 65 or 70 shop in the store hmm. uh, with the idea that they're trying to minimize uh, this high-risk group from being exposed to younger people. Let me just get back to some of the bigger issues here. There has been a big focus on testing. Uh, President, yep. President Trump said several weeks ago that anyone who wants a test can get one. That was not true. What is the reality of testing now? And does testing yeah. matter? Well, testing matters hugely. And in fact, this report that we started the conversation with that uh, the early uh, transmission of cases was from asymptomatic folks. Uh -huh. Sorry. Um, the only way one can know that they're infected is through testing. Um, apologies. So the, the status of testing now nationally is very unclear. And one of the reasons it's unclear is because the CDC has, uh, is, it will not show the numbers on their website. They removed them about a week or so ago, and they're still... Uh, the numbers that they now show are very, very incomplete. Uh, but that said, it is gearing up dramatically. Uh, that, that's partly because they have the FDA has officially let both academic and commercial labs within states to develop their own tests and proceed with just state regulation without the bottleneck of having to be approved by the FDA. So now you have a sort of bit of an army of companies and labs that are gearing up to do these tests as fast as they can. Here in uh, at Stanford, we're actually one of the main testing areas for, for this entire region. <clears throat> we just heard this morning um, that they are able to do roughly two to 300 a day. Again, that's pretty pathetic compared to the need, but it's better than it was last week. And they are aiming for, who knows when they will get there, uh, a thousand a day. Again, this is pretty much saved for people who are showing symptoms and sometimes showing uh, pretty significant symptoms. So 
what they're doing is they're reserving the testing capacity for the care of people who might come into the hospital, not really for the protection of the community. And we need to be able to do the kinds of testing that would enable us to actually to test the community. Um, and that's what we don't have, that capacity we don't have right now. And you've talked about there being a shortage of reagent. Um, and explain what a reagent is and what that means for testing. Even if they're sending out testing kits, they apparently can't run the tests without this chemical. Yes, that's uh, that's exactly right. So, for the most accurate test, the one that's uh, that they're using for diagnosis, um, there's a chemical that needs to be done right at the in the very first step, which is to extract the virus's RNA, that the ribonucleic acid, that the, the signature of the of the virus that they then process to identify it, its fingerprint. Um, but that reagent. Uh, which is used for this particular uh, procedure, which is used very, very widely. It's, it's not specific to this test. It's a completely standard uh, a laboratory test. Uh, is being the, the capacity to manufacture that in the, in, is, is limited. And so there's a, a national shortage of this uh, reagent. And around here, They've been asking the laboratories who use it just for uh, research to release all their stores of this reagent to the clinic, to the hospital. Uh, they say they now have uh, adequate um, reagent for a while. I don't know that, and that's just here. Uh, but we're very worried about this long term for the country. the The company that makes it is gearing up, but uh, it's uh, very unclear whether they can meet the demand that the, the, the bar that Fauci has required, which is millions and millions of tests. Hmm. So even though there are lots of kits out there sent by the CDC, the CDC test actually doesn't include this reagent. So those <laughs> kits cannot be used. This is like getting the uh, the bookshelf from Home Depot and finding it has no screws. So it sits uh, as a... Right. Or, or the soup mix from the store, but you don't have broth or water to put in it. So you're just left with the beans. Yeah. So I, I want to just uh, uh, quickly, with the few minutes we have left, what could have been here? We first heard of the coronavirus in, from China in uh, that was going on in China in December. First U.S. cases appeared, I think, in January. And uh, apparently this was raised by uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Azar, but Trump did not want to do widespread testing for fear uh, that it would hurt his reelection. Politico reports this. So can you sketch out what would the alternative scenario for how coronavirus could have been managed here in the U.S. and where might we be today if that had happened? Well, obviously, a lot of this is hypothetical, but... It, it, it's useful. It is obvious from what has to be done now that the actual response to something like this takes massive coordination and planning. Uh, the, the social, the distancing, the communications, the supply lines, the reagents, all these things that we are seeing now in real time could have been and in fact were planned for in advance. In fact, as you may have seen on the media, it was an exercise when, for Trump's team when they first came in that virtually exactly mimicked what we're facing today. They were told to be ready for it. And uh, what they did some uh, not long after was to fire 
the pandemic preparedness team. So what it could have looked like was a plan that was in place for all the coordination plus early warning plus early testing that would have that would have dramatically beat this back at, at the first sign. And, but it was thought that this could all be constructed afterwards. In fact, Trump said this from the White House, that the, the people were sitting around, quote, doing nothing, and they could always be hired back. Well, we have fire departments, right? We, we don't start talking about hiring firefighters as soon as we see a massive fire. That's what we're doing now. So if you want to know what we could have done, we could have had firefighters sitting nationally, near in the White House, uh, at the CDC, and in public health departments, ready and with networks and systems ready to go from the first day. And we haven't had that. And so guess what? The house is burning down. So, you know, what would have happened? Hard to say. Uh, but it would have been, uh, we wouldn't have been trying to fight this fire in, in while it's roaring. Finally, uh, you know, disasters like this are a time when normal thinking and acting ends and society can take quantum leaps in a different direction, hopefully better and not worse. Uh, these can be times for big ideas. What would you say is a big idea for how we could reshape how we do healthcare and public health in this country that could be the silver lining uh, for this epidemic? Well, I've had it's a big idea, and it's a big, potentially big answer. I'll, I'll just, I know we don't have much time. I'll just say a few sentences, and it connects to my previous answer. Public health departments and public health functions are done at the city and the county level. They are typically starved for funds. They barely have enough people or don't have enough people typically to carry out even the, the minimal functions of public health departments no less connect on a regional and national level uh, to to um, respond to not just emergencies, but to the huge public health problems that, that we face. So what would be very, very nice uh, once we get through this is that we come out of it with a much more robustly funded and coordinated public health infrastructure uh, at, the, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. Uh, that sort of thing would support not just response to pandemics, but how we as a society deal with the various plagues that afflict us um, on an ongoing basis, of which sometimes we're only minimally aware and we seem to think that we're powerless against. But we're not powerless against them if we have much stronger uh, public health funding, coordination, and, and infrastructure and now we're seeing the, the, the value of it or the, the, the price of not having it. And if we can come out of this with that adequately funded, that would be nice. Although I have to say it's very dispiriting to hear that uh, the Trump administration was just last week justifying further cuts to the CDC. The CDC has been cut to the bone. That's sort of our national public health agency. And they were justifying further, I think it was 15% cuts, even in the face of this. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can we can fund them robustly going forward, expand the budget and again, expand the infrastructure going all the way down to the county and city levels. OK, well, Steve Goodman, I want to thank you once again for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
Thank you for having me again. Uh, Steve Goodman is an associate dean at the Stanford Medical School, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine, and he is also my brother.